The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about stopping a coal-fired power plant in Salem, Massachusetts. And with me is Kelly Mitchell. Hello, Kelly. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Um, let me say a bit about you. Kelly Mitchell is uh, the um, Kelly Mitchell is a grass organi- grassroots organizer. She probably can organize grass too, but she's really good at organizing people. And she's currently the coal campaigner for Greenpeace USA. And I understand you're in Chicago. That's correct. So, on this program, we're going to talk about the work you're doing to stop a coal-fired power plant in Salem, Massachusetts, and we also want to talk about the work you're doing in Chicago with the Clean, Clean Power Coalition. Um, but before we talk about those two items and other work of Greenpeace you're doing, I just had a um, phone call from a uh, whale researcher off the coast of uh, St. Augustine, Florida, and he called me in saying, Rob, they just the Florida legislature is putting up a bill on Monday that will uh, strike out all the, any county ordinances that better controls the amount of nutrients coming from fertilizers put on lawns and agriculture into the waterways of Florida. So Jim was really alarmed. Uh, and the Ocean River Institute has been leading a campaign to stop the dying dolphins of Florida. Uh, Unfortunately, dolphins like humans and unlike manatees, they um, can develop skin-eating fungal infections that are not, not good. And we're seeing an high mortality rates of dolphins in, uh, around the coast of Florida because of the toxic soup they're swimming in. And one contributor to that is the nutrients that flow off of lawns and, and agriculture. And for lawns, the, uh, they're, they're putting 500% more than they should on the lawns of, uh, of Florida. And agriculture is only 100% more. So where our initiative is to have county ordinances that explain what the cap is for how much, um, how much fertilizer is to put on your lawn. I mean, who needs to spend an extra Saturday morning if they don't have to putting stuff on their lawns? Um, and it has been shown, uh, the scientists have found that when the, um, the nutrients or nitrogen levels are highest and when chlorophyll 
levels, meaning the algae is blooming and it's at its greatest, that is when we see the most depth of dolphins. So I, I'm just a little distracted, Kelly, from our program because I wanted to get the word out to, um, to everybody that um, we have a campaign going on oceanrivers.org to uh, asking, urging Floridians to uh, write to their state senators and say, please uh, leave intact the county home rule um, regulations on uh, capping fertilizers. So people can go to our website, oceanriver.org, if they want to know more about that, and, uh, and sign the petition. It's also on a Facebook causes page called Dying Dolphins in Florida, Stop Dying Dolphins in Florida. And there's also a campaign, uh, there's another uh, petition, uh, there will be shortly another petition on uh, change.org as well. Kelly, do you see this happening in, in your line of work where you think things are proceeding and suddenly uh, there's a change at, at, at a legislature level? Yeah, I mean, I, I worked for a long time trying to get good climate and energy legislation passed through the House of Representatives and the Senate, and we definitely saw things like this all the time where you think you're going to get a vote and it's canceled the last minute or a hearing is pulled or, you know, even in our work in Chicago, it's happening all the time. And I think it's it's a really unfortunate example of what happens with government around the country where they're very willing to, like you said, ignore the science of what's happening, ignore a lot of the work that, that citizens have put in to see you know, good policy put in place and you know, just sort of turn a blind eye to a lot of the health and environmental devastation that, that chemicals, whether it's fertilizer, whether it's coal, whether it's chlorine um, that, you know, is being put into our environment. Well, this is why we need a Greenpeace, and it's why I started the Ocean River Institute, was to build, in my case, to build a network of people who are networked in through email and other social media so that they can be responsive to these sudden situations where the power brokers try to pull a fast one, and if we're asleep at the wheel, you know, oh, my gosh, if people were, you know, asleep at the wheel in Wisconsin, it would be a very different story today. Um, and, and this is what I think Greenpeace is renowned for, is your responsiveness in, uh, to these situations to mobilize people quickly. Absolutely. And, I mean, it's no surprise that a lot of the, the big landmark votes that happen in Congress happen, you know, Saturday morning at 3 a.m. when no one's paying attention. And it's a lot easier for our representatives at any level if this stuff happens in the shadows where they can make their friends and industry happy. And, and like you said, when things like this happen, it's absolutely the moment for people to mobilize, to call their senator, to show up at their office, to write a letter. Um, and in the case of Greenpeace, we have a lot of other fun tools at our disposal to hold some of these folks accountable. Yeah, you're really good at this stuff. So tell me about my old hometown of Salem, Massachusetts. What's going on there? Yeah, up in Salem there... There's a coal-fired power plant. It's over 60 years old. Um, it's, it's really not needed. It's a toxic hazard. Um, Harvard, actually back in 2000, did a study of the plant and found that when this plant is operating at full capacity, it's killing 50 people a year just because of the pollution coming out of the smokestacks. And it's, I mean, on a, a very basic level, absolutely disgusting that plants like Salem are able to operate around the country. But... 
there is a bit of a, a silver lining to this whole situation in that now for over a decade there's been just a great coalition of, of local groups out there that are actually standing up to the plant owners, formerly PG&E, now Dominion, um, calling on local government and actually working to see this plant shut down. So they brought the, the attention of they brought the attention to Greenpeace. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Lori Elric, who is now a state representative, was formerly a, a community activist up there. Uh, first reached out to Greenpeace, I think, in two thousand one. And at the time, we were doing a, a tour around the East Coast with the Rainbow Warrior, um, one of our three ships, and we were able actually to sail to Salem Harbor and get some activists on top of the coal pile out there and, and do one of those sort of dramatic examples of a peaceful protest that Greenpeace is known for and called a, hopefully a bit of attention to that plant, um, used it as an opportunity to talk about what the Bush Energy Plan would actually mean for communities like Salem. And you know, over the last decade, the local groups have absolutely been continuing that fight and where possible Greenpeace has been working to help them out. We now have an organizer based in Boston, and his top priority is, is basically doing everything in his power to, to bridge connections between Boston and Salem, uh, work at a statewide level, and, and ensure that that plant shut down by the end of next year. You guys really do things in style. I mean, you didn't just appear uh, at the uh, coal-fired facility. You came in aboard an enormous icebreaker boat. What was that? <laughs> Yeah, well, the Rainbow Warrior is actually our only non-icebreaker boat. It's a sailing vessel. But, um, you know, like you said, it is it is a great example of the type of work that Greenpeace can do. We are fortunate enough to have ships at our disposal. We are fortunate enough to have, you know, teams of activists that can climb facilities or operate inflatable boats. And we we want to be a group that's that does inspiring action that does the, the type of, of creative activities that force people to really think twice about what's happening. Um, you know, we got a lot of our start with vessels sailing into nuclear test sites or people going down to the Southern Ocean and putting themselves between a harpoon and a whale. And I think when you do that kind of dramatic activity, you wake people up a little bit and you force them to take a side. And, and in the case of what's happening in Salem Harbor, once you actually realize what that plant is doing, that it is killing people, that it is putting health at risk, that it's making a lot of money for, for a company that has no regard for the well-being of, of local residents, then I think it's pretty easy to, to realize that the plant needs to be shut down and, um, you know, basically people have to be put above polluter profits. It is remarkable that uh, Sea Shepherd, by putting itself in front of those Whaling ships from Japan and the Antarctic just last week got the Antar got the Japanese to withdraw their whaling from the Antarctic. Yeah. Um, um, tell us about um, so what what had happened when Greenpeace came to town in Boston, in Boston and Salem. Yeah. So in this most recent trip, um, we actually brought one of our icebreakers, the Arctic Sunrise, up into Boston Harbor. Unfortunately. We were not given uh, a place in the inn up in Salem because the last time we brought up a ship there, we, we started up a, a little bit of trouble. But um, we brought the ship to Boston as part of a coal-free future tour that we've been doing over the past month that actually just wrapped up. And we, we took the ship starting in North Carolina, worked it up the coast at, e at each location, 
we wanted to connect with communities like the folks at HealthLink and Salem Safe who have been fighting coal plants. And while we were in town in Boston, we did a couple of activities. So um, we hosted a community forum on board the ship, and we brought down you know, Jim Gordon, the man behind the Cape Wind Project, Representative Lori Elwick, uh, Shanna from the Conservation Law Foundation that's done amazing, amazing work up there, representatives from Salem, representatives from Marblehead, and we really talked about, you know, next steps and, and how we were going to make sure that this plant is closed down as quickly as possible. Um, while we were up there, we also released a report with Harvard, with Dr. Paul Epstein at Harvard that documents the true cost of coal, um, which is... I mean, his research has shown now that coal is costing Americans up to half a trillion dollars every year because of public health costs and environmental cleanup costs and climate change, and that's obviously no surprise for anyone who lives up in Salem or near any of these plants. Um, and then finally we did... Excuse me, can you tell us a little more about Dr. Epstein's report? Like, yeah, how did he definitely. get up to a half million dollars or... Yeah, so he, he worked on this report for a number of years, and he brought in economists, and he brought in, you know, folks in the public health sector and folks who understand mining and transportation. And he basically looked at, at every stage of the life cycle of using coal. So he started, you know, doing research on communities in Appalachia, and then what happens when this stuff is transported over rail, what happens when it's brought to cities and, and burned in plants like Salem Harbor, and then what happens when the, the waste is disposed of, and at every step along the way, you know, he studied everything from, you know, what does it actually cost a community when there are cancer clusters and people are taking time off to go to the hospital? Mm. What does it cost a community if lives are lost? Um, you know, what does it cost a community when asthma rates skyrocket, when coal ash is leaching contaminants into the groundwater? And, and what happens as climate change progresses and we're looking at food shortages and weather disturbances on crops and Adding that, that data all together, that's where he reached that half a trillion number, which is sort of a high estimate on a range. And, I mean, this is, this is money that's not reflected in our energy bill, but still absolutely money that we're paying is the public. Yes, it's just phenomenal. Uh, Kelly Mitchell, we're going to be back right after this break. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're talking about stopping a coal-fired power plant with Kelly Mitchell, uh, and Kelly, I was going to relate to you, um, my son went to uh, junior high in Salem, and when he was in sixth grade, they handed out these um, bins with uh, dirt in them, and the, the challenge was to figure out what part of Salem each bin came from, and the bin that my son was given, and the group that he was in, um, they immediately knew it was Winter Island because of the coal ash that they could see on, that it settled on the, the turf. I mean, they actually had bits of grass and stuff in there, and between the grass leaves, you could, they could see the, the, the coal stuff. And people of Salem, they, we can't hang our laundry out because of the, the ash that gathers on the laundry. Uh, so it, it's a remarkable problem, and they've just been suffering this way and feeling that you know, it was their burden to provide energy for the rest of the country. Um, so it's, it's really exciting to see uh, the attention of a national group, Greenpeace, come, come into town. And my friends who are with the Salem Sound Coast Watch organization uh, were outraged that the harbor master wouldn't let, you, wouldn't let the uh, Arctic sun, sunrise come into the harbor and stuff. Uh, so, Kelly, tell us about, uh, well, did we finish where you, where you were before we broke? Yeah, I was just talking a bit about, you know, some of the activities that we did up in town and, and the Harvard report. But Yeah, um, so you were telling us about Dr. Epstein's report that uh, the Salem coal pow- the coal-fired power plant is actually costing the community, what, a half million a year? Uh, well, his, his research was, was national, so it's... Oh, okay. It's looking at um, the cost to the American public at large, and... And that number is up to, I think, the high high range of his research is five hundred and thirty two billion dollars, and I yeah. mean that's <laughs> going to be up in the billions when you yeah. spread it across the whole nation, and that makes sense if people are living downwind. You, you mentioned uh, Representative uh, Ehrlich, who lives in Marblehead, and you know Marblehead is not part of Salem; it's quite separate, but it's just across the water from the power plant. And uh, so it's a big concern for Marbleheaders. And, and so it's important that, you know, these effects are not so local as just hitting one community. They do, they do spread downwind. 
Absolutely. And then when you rope in climate change on top of all that, um, coal is the largest single source of, of climate change pollution in the U.S. So, you know, even yes. if you're hundreds of miles away from one of these plants, you're going to be feeling the impact at some point. Well, it's global. Yeah, that's right. The whole, you know, 387 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, uh, you're saying that one of the biggest contributors is our industrial, you know, coal-fired plants and petroleum-based fired plants and so forth. Absolutely. Um, so the key is, and it's often difficult, to get the different parties that can make a difference together. Everyone's busy, so it's difficult to get, um, you know, busy people to step out of their comfort zone and, and step out of their normal routines to, to meet. And by Greenpeace coming to Boston, and particularly you as a grassroots organizer uh, coming to town, um, tell us again what you organize between the, the kind of power, the decision makers of the region. Sure. Um, well, just more broadly, I think one of the things that is for me really inspiring about what's happening in Salem is that a couple of the groups up there, like Salem Safe and HealthLink, really did just start as, as citizens, as very everyday people, getting together and saying, look, this thing is happening. I don't just want to complain about it. I want to do something about it. And without, you know, a professional organizer, someone like Greenpeace, we're really able to get some great momentum working, going on up there, and, and we're able to, to make an impact on, on that plant. And while we were in town, we wanted to support exactly that kind of work and, and see if we could use you know, some of our, our reputation or our resources to, to bring more players to the table. So, uh, like I said, we had folks out from HealthLink. Uh, we had folks from Students for a Just and Stable Future, you know, residents of Salem and Marblehead. We had Representative Lori Elric, who's, you know, whose story is just unbelievable and in, in how she went from just a concerned mom now to a state rep pushing clean energy initiatives at a statewide level. Um, then we also had uh, Jim Gordon from Cape Wind out there to talk about, you know, what can replace plants like Salem Harbor. And and I think bringing those voices together and, and getting people talking and sharing strategies and sharing stories is the kind of work that Greenpeace wants to do all around the country um, because there's a, there's a lot of power out there and there's a lot of people who, who realize what's going on and, and we just need to learn to, to speak with one voice to, to you know, condense our our power a bit and, and really confront some of the big corporate polluters out there. So Dominion Power wasn't part of the meeting? Dominion Power was not, was not part of the meeting. Um, and, you know, I, to be honest, I don't, I don't think we invited them, but they've made it fairly clear over the years they're not particularly concerned with, with the well-being of, of folks out in, in that area. And, there is one, one small bit of good news is that Dominion has now filed a request to retire the Salem plant by 2014. And um, it's, you know, I think it is a testament to a lot of the amazing work that's happened up there. They realize that the plant's not profitable anymore. They realize that, you know, year after year they're going to face citizen opposition. They're going to face lawsuits. They're going to really have headache after headache for for as long as they keep this plant open. Unfortunately, it's looking like, you know, until the, the minute that this plant closes, they're going to try to swindle and squeeze every last cent out of ratepayers in the area to keep this plant open. Yes, yes. Well, 
you know, it's these corporations, they really care about their bottom line. They really care about the money, and it makes them look like they don't care about people. And it's really challenging to try to help them see their bottom line, you know, um, how that could be, you know, like um, that was probably some of the thinking of bringing in the Cape Wind person, mm-hmm. who's also a natural gas generator uh, person, uh, to, you know, to help the, the power plant owners think of, you know, are there other ways they could be making this money without, because uh, that's a big thing in, in uh, Salem is the, those who like the power plant, it's not that they like toking on ash falling out of the sky, it's that they see it as a source of jobs and they don't want to ever lose jobs. And so it's, it's good if you can facilitate, um, you know, alternative jobs or related jobs that uh, could, could fill that uh, void. Uh, was there any suggestion of, uh, of uh, a different kind of power production uh, in there at the site? Or it's right on the waterfront, and it's really striking because there's this, gosh, it must be a 100-foot-high pile of coal when they load it up. It's this huge mountain of coal. They park it right on the water's edge, right next to the power plant, and then it gets smaller as they use it up, I suppose. Um, and then there's Winter Island, which is attached by uh, an isthmus to, the, to Salem, and uh, it's a park, and it's the old Coast Guard place. Uh, so there must be opportunities for, for some kind of energy to, to follow the Dominion. Yeah. I mean, I think the first myth to dispel is that that this plant is even needed to begin with. I mean, the the bureaucratic agency, it's called um, ISO New England, that's responsible for maintaining power in the area, over the last couple of years has said that, that Salem is needed for reliability, but that's it's really only under the condition that, you know, in the heat of summer when there's a heat wave and everyone's running their air conditioning and then, you know, somewhere downwind a, a transmission grid hub breaks or another power plant fails and only if this sort of bizarre confluence of factors come together that there might be, you know, seven days a year where Salem's needed. And, um, you know, that that's no reason to keep open a plant that's that's putting people's lives at risk. So... I think there's a lot of things that can be done right right out of the gate to, you know, increase energy efficiency through the area. Um, and then, yeah, to bring more offshore wind to these communities. And, and those are real job creators when you think about it. I mean, with energy efficiency, you have to have, you know, your neighbor come to your house and put new windows in or install a new appliance. Um, already nationally, the wind industry employs more people than the coal industry because the coal industry has done everything in its power to mechanize and mechanize and cut jobs, whereas the wind industry requires, you know, skilled labor to build a lot of these these different products. So the job growth potential, you know, you want to talk about economic recovery than than really closing down these coal plants and creating more space for renewable energy is the way to go. Yes, yes, that's excellent. Um, So... It sounds like it was a very worthwhile visit for Greenpeace to come to Salem. Absolutely. And, I mean, now now that Dominion's saying they want this plant closed, now that it's kind of in the hands of a couple of bureaucratic agencies that don't always feel the, the crippling urgency to, to shut these plants down as, as someone who lives in these towns, Greenpeace and other groups are really focusing our attention on Governor Patrick. And, I mean, he he's really a man who can step in 
who can lean on whoever needs to be leaned on to ensure this plant can close by the end of next year. And then really to, to talk about, you know, more visionary projects for the state of Massachusetts so that it's not just Salem Harbor, but we're closing down, you know, Brighton Point, we're closing down Mount Tom, um, we're actually creating a, a coal-free state. Yes, is Mount Tom a coal-fired plant as well? It is. It's a pretty small one, um, especially compared to, you know, some of the plants up in Somerset and Salem. But um, Right. But it, uh, you know, no reason This is important for people out of the region well. is that um, Massachusetts only has three coal-fired power plants, and they be <laughs> Salem, Somerset Point, or Somerset Brighton Point, and um, apparently Mount Tom area on, on the center of the state near the Connecticut River, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're almost and I mean, there, and go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, I, I just think, you know, there's a bill in the Massachusetts state legislature right now to get the state coal-free by 2020, and, you know, it would just be such a testament to amazing community activism if, if Massachusetts could set an example for the rest of the country and, and shut these plants down and, and show in a very real sense that we don't need them, we don't want them, and it's time to move on to is just better. <laughs> yes, and the Massachusetts League of Environmental Voters is working, it's a political organization, it's a C4 group, and they are working with the legislature to put through that bill to shut down the coal. And if you want to support and have some political oomph to your actions, um, take a look at uh, Mass League of Environmental Voters, MLEV.org, um, to help us uh, move responsible legislation through the Beacon Hill legislature there. Uh, we're going to be back to talk with uh, Kelly Mitchell after this break. We're going to talk about Chicago and what's going on out in that neck of the woods. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about stopping coal-fired power plants in Salem, Massachusetts, and also in Chicago. And with me is today is Kelly Mitchell, the coal campaigner for Greenpeace USA. Kelly, how can people learn more about your work and contact you? Yeah, anyone who's interested in learning more about Greenpeace's coal work can check out our website. It's greenpeace.org. From there, you can hit some links about our last coal-free future tour, about our coal campaign and global warming campaign, and also sign up to volunteer and get involved in your own community. It's really impressive how Greenpeace is really addressing environmental justice issues. When you go to greenpeace.org, www.greenpeace.org, it's, it's coal-fired plants right in, all, you know, spread across the homepage there, <clears throat> which is, for too long, environmental groups have been worried about, you know, a pristine wilderness somewhere, and it hasn't been the issues of many people. And this campaign is right in the front yards of the people who, you know, middle-class America, and uh, this is really impressive. So, um, Kelly, you had to take a plane back to get back to Chicago from the, the Boston activities of last week. You had some big political activities uh, yesterday, I suppose. And... Um, so tell me what it was like flying back from flying into Chicago. Yeah, it is. It is always interesting when when I come back into town. Um, I fly into Midway Airport, which is in the southwest side of the city, and and to get back, you either take the train or fifty five to downtown. And as you're coming in, you you pass two sets of smokestacks, one for the Crawford coal plant, one for the Fisk coal plant, and it's just this constant reminder every time I come into the city that there are these these aging plants right in the heart of Chicago. And, you know, thankfully there's some interesting work being done to shut them down. But it it is a little sad that this is, you know, one of the first things you see when you come into this otherwise gorgeous city. Well, you know, out of sight, out of mind. So thank goodness it's mindful for some people. Uh, tell us about the... Clean Power Coalition. Yeah, the, the Clean Power Coalition is a, like it says, a, a coalition of groups that's working to to shut down and 
clean up these these two coal-fired power plants. And it's it's very exciting for me. Again, I get a little bit worked up and, and emotional about citizen activism, but it's incredible. I mean, there are these two coal-fired power plants. Um, they're located in the, the communities of Pilsen and Little Village, uh, predominantly Latino communities, um, in some cases slightly lower income than the rest of the city. And for a long time, there were there were two groups there, Lavejo and Pero, that were community groups, environmental justice groups, fighting these plants. And now we're at a point where these local groups are joining forces with some national and international groups like Greenpeace and the Sierra Club, with organizations like the Respiratory Health Association, with Rainforest Action Network, and we've formed this this coalition of groups that's now working the Clean Power Ordinance, which is a, a city council bill that would force the owners of the plants, Midwest Generation, to dramatically cut pollution, both climate change pollution and particulate pollution coming out of these plants. And the hope is that it's going to force them into a situation where they just choose to, to shut them down once and for all. Yeah, that's why. So they're just saying you must close you're setting benchmarks that they must meet to be more clean? Exactly. It's calling for 80% reduction in soot and a lot of the um, you know, respiratory illness-causing pollution and then a 50% reduction in, in greenhouse gas pollution out of both plants. Wow. So that, that's, is there technology to do that, or is that just pie in the sky? Um, currently, there's no technology at a coal-fired power plant to make that that level of reduction, especially in the, uh, the global warming pollution. So if the ordinance passes, Midwest Gen will have the choice to convert these plants to natural gas facilities or to shut them down. And Greenpeace is very committed to making sure they shut down. They actually provide no power for the city of Chicago, but view all the pollution into our community. And they're old plants. I mean, if you look at them, they're, they're just disgusting. And it's a smarter investment for Midwest generation, and, it, and it's absolutely a better choice for the city of Chicago if these plants just close altogether. And if those plants are closed, they're absolutely going to hit those uh, emissions reduction targets. So where does the power go? Um, it, it goes sort of out in the grid, so some of it, a lot of it just sort of goes downstate and into parts of Illinois. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's sort of unthinkable sometimes when you realize that, you know, there's, similarly to what's happened in, in Salem, Harvard's done some research particular on these coal plants, and more people live in the three-mile radius surrounding these coal plants than any other coal plants in the country. The population density there is incredibly high. Again, they cause about 40 deaths per year, and then the city's not even getting the benefit of power. So it's oh so much no-brainer that these things need to be shut down immediately. Now, coal plants don't just put soot and, uh, and carbon in the atmosphere. They have other detrimental effects, don't they? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's sort of... Nitrogen oxide and sulfur dioxide, you know, pollutants that cause asthma rain or acid rain and asthma. Um, there's, you know, the waste that comes out of these plants is 
waste with a lot of really toxic chemicals like arsenic and lead. Plants pump mercury into the atmosphere. There's like I could I could list off all the toxic compounds, but well, no, your that's, listeners would probably be asleep at the end of it. No. <laughs> to put mercury into people's lungs, that's that's not good. No, and, and across the country, coal plants are the, the largest source of mercury pollution, whether that's from when the plants are burning coal or in the disposal process. Um, there's these big beds of coal ash waste that contain, you know, very toxic levels of mercury, and a lot of times that stuff leaches right into the groundwater. And, you know, this is a, a compound that causes birth defects and cancers and neurological disorders and... Again, we're just, you know, our governments are sort of turning a blind eye and, and letting this stuff continue to, to pump into our atmosphere. Yeah, fishermen find that, that, you know, in kind of urban area lakes where they used to be able to go catch fish, they're now told they can't eat the fish because they're too toxic. Mm-hmm. And some of that is from the, probably the, the waste piles of sorted industries that are leaching into the water, I guess. And some of it could be raining out of the skies, I suppose. But um, I don't think there's like, you know, these toxins just being poured directly into the lake. I think they're coming in through uh, these other insidious ways. Yep, that's exactly right. So there'll be spinoff benefits if they can close down. And, well, then closing down is half the battle and cleaning up is the next half, I guess. But yep. there might be spinoff benefits for everybody if that happens. Yeah, and... The Little Village Environmental Justice Organization are located in the Little Village community where the Crawford plant is, um, and their partner group in Pilsen have been looking into some studies about you know how we could reuse that land for projects that are actually beneficial to the people who live there. And you know, I know Greenpeace is generally always promoting you know various efficiency projects so that we're creating more and better jobs when these plants are shut down. Absolutely. Although you've got an incredible remediation problem of, of the soils of those sites. They probably are brown, you know, brown sites. And, uh, you know, a lot of communities have to, I suppose, just cap them off and make sure they're sealed and then put something on top that isn't uh, dependent on eating the grass that's growing out of it or something. Yeah, and unfortunately, I don't know all the specifics. Some of the, like you said, soil issues around the plants, but yeah, it's just going to be really important that no matter what comes out of this ordinance, what comes out of you know future efforts to shut these plants down, that Midwest Generation is is held accountable for what they've done to this community, and that they're the ones putting the bill for cleanup, and not people who have already you know paid that cost through their health lives and their taxes over the last, you know, decades. Absolutely. So tell us about the ordinance and you're trying to get it through city government. Yep. So the ordinance was introduced about 10 months ago by an alderman named Joel Moore. And since then it's been, you know, picking up quite a number of, of co-sponsors. I think at last count we were at about 16 or 17. The bill needs 26 votes to pass in city council and I think we're getting there. The problem we've been facing is that we haven't been able to get a hearing on the bill. The chairs of the Energy Committee and the Health Committee that deal with this kind of legislation have been been stalling, and it's it's quite likely because 
some members of the daily administration behind the scenes have been sort of stonewalling and putting the brakes on that. So after about nine months of waiting, the coalition of groups decided that it was time that the people got a fair hearing. So with the help of Alderman Moore, we actually hosted a people's hearing uh, last Monday, the 14th, in city council chambers, and we brought in experts who could testify to everything from jobs to the health impacts to the climate impacts. Uh, community members were offered the opportunity to give testimony. In this case, Midwest Gen actually was contacted to come and speak and decided that they, you know, maybe weren't willing to confront the people whose lives they had put at risk for so long. And I do think it was just a really good step forward in that for media attendance, for all the men in attendance, finally all the facts were laid out on the table about what's really happening with these plants. And we've got some word recently that we may we may actually get a hearing before the session is out. And, you know, maybe Mayor Daly is sort of deciding that he wants to live up to his legacy as a great green mayor. Um, but if not, you know, we're, we're going to keep pushing forward. And now that Mr. Emanuel has, uh, has taken top prize in the city of Chicago, we're going to be pushing him to really embrace this cause. Well, before we talk about Mr. Emanuel, uh, the, the people's hearing that you had, was there a good, uh, there was an outpouring of uh, locals uh, testifying, or were you kind of disappointed in how many people took the time to come to a hearing? I was very happy with how it turned out. I mean, this was, you know, 9, 10 a.m. on a weekday, and we had almost 300 people packed into the wow. chamber. So. I mean, it, it's no question that the people of Chicago want these plants shut down. It's just a question of how soon government's going to get their act together. Kelly Mitchell is going to be back after this break to tell us about shutting down coal-powered plants in urban areas. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening.
listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're talking about stopping coal-fired power plants in Salem, Massachusetts, and in Chicago, Illinois, with Kelly Mitchell, coal campaigner, Greenpeace.org. Kelly, in addition to um, being very active uh, with the uh, Clean Power Coalition that's working to shut down two coal-fired plants in Chicago that we talked about just before the break, uh, you've also been politically active in Yesterday, there was an election for mayor, right? Yeah, it was a pretty big deal for the city of Chicago. Um, after 22 years in office, uh, Mayor Daly is finally stepping down, and we now have uh, Rahm Emanuel looking, well, I guess all the sources have confirmed he's going to be our next mayor starting in May. So the, the way it works in Chicago is that there are a number of candidates on the ballot, and if one candidate gets sufficient, then it's this ballot, and if not, then you go to another ballot. Is that how it works? Yeah, so you have to get 50% of the vote in the, the first run um, to take the seat. Otherwise, it goes to a runoff. But I haven't seen the last numbers, but as of last night, when the polling data was coming in, it looked like uh, Rom had taken like 56 57% of the vote. So it's a pretty... Pretty strong win from him, and it looks like he's going to be our new mayor. Is this good or bad from your green point of view or your coal campaigning point of view? It's a good question, and I think it's a little bit of an unknown for us. Um, right before the election, the environmental community, in this particular instance, Greenpeace wasn't a part of it, but sent out a, a candidate questionnaire, and the first question was asking candidates whether or not they supported the Clean Power Ordinance and supported cleaning up or shutting down the coal-fired power plants. And every other candidate came out and endorsed the ordinance except Rahm Emanuel. And he wrote a note, you know, he just sort of didn't answer the question and and wrote a note saying he was committed to cleaning up the plants. But in our view, that's not quite good enough. We need a mayor who's going to say confidently that he will work to, to shut these plants down. So... For us, we're not entirely sure on on what side of the table Rahm Emanuel is standing. Yeah, this is consistent with uh, when uh, Obama was campaigning for the the primary for the presidency was uh, the same kind of ambiguity on environmental issues. Um, So good luck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, You know, these guys have to uh, survive politically first and do things politically second, I guess. Yeah, and we're gonna no, we're not giving up on this fight anytime soon and we'll continue working, you know, with with Rom, with Daly as far as he's in office and, you know, with whoever else is willing to, to cooperate to ensure these plants are shut. Right. You're on schedule to try to get a, a hearing uh before Daly leaves office. Is that what you were okay. saying, right? Yeah, it, it's it's looking more and more like that might be the case, and our hope is that things like the people sharing have moved um, moved the discussion in in the right direction. So 
So there's a couple of months for city council, for Mayor Daly to get this right, to pass the ordinance, and then it's going to be up to our new mayor to see that it's enforced and to put the necessary pressure on Midwest Generation to make sure they're actually shutting down these plants and giving us a chance for, for some clean air in the city. Yes, well put. And hopefully the incoming mayor won't feel that something stinks of the outgoing mayor and have to take remove it because it smells too much of the last guy when they change political horses like this. Uh, tell us about, um, we only have a couple minutes left. Uh, why, what can people do to make a difference for the environment? And, yeah. Yeah. There's a, a whole range of things that, that individuals can do, and a lot of it does, does start in the home and, and using energy more wisely in our individual lives. But we've definitely reached a point now where change is needed at the state level, at the national level, at the international level. So I think first and foremost, it's and if you have one of these plants in your backyard, if you're concerned about these issues, you know, reaching out to your elected officials, um, reaching out to the energy company directly and just letting people know that there's a better way to power our country than coal. Um, anyone who's interested in, in getting more involved with Greenpeace and the work that we do can visit our, our website at greenpeace.org. There's a volunteer button. You fill out a form, and we'll get in touch with you. And there's, you know, no matter where you are in this country, you can get plugged into our work from, you know, doing online action alerts to working with a, a grassroots organizer in your community to, you know, getting involved with some of the trainings and programs that we run across the country. And one thing you made clear in this discussion today is that, you know, you don't have to just think globally and then figure out where to go act and go act, but that there are people in these areas where there are uh, environmental degradations happening that have come together. So if you move to a community and you see something awful like a coal power plant, chances are there's a group there that you should get in touch with to fortify your your. Uh, yourself before, you know, going before the power brokers and stuff. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And my hope is that, you know, in the next couple of years, Greenpeace is really going to commit ourselves to working with those types of groups and lending our resources and expertise where we can to make their work louder or more powerful or resonate to a bigger audience. But at the same time, we also want to use some of our, our corporate campaigning skills to expose some of the, you know, industry figures who are operating behind the scenes, draw them to the shadows to make sure that they're not undermining the efforts of, of citizen activists. Yes, this is a good group, and Greenpeace is a great resource. I urge you to go to greenpeace.org to learn about opportunities where you can help. And as you said, Kelly, the kinds of work you guys do, like the Dr. Epstein scientific study that documented how how much damage these coal fire plants really do is something that only the big boys like Greenpeace can do. Yeah, it's like, like I said, I, I do feel very blessed to work for this organization, and we can do everything from, you know, really hard-hitting scientific analysis of, of the problem to, like you said, daring direct action or bringing a ship to, to a fight or training up community groups. So... We are fortunate to have a lot of tools in our toolbox, and in the coming years, our priority is going to be to to put those to work taking down the coal industry. And you're international, and maybe briefly you want to sketch out some of the 
scope and, and uh, diversity of projects that Greenpeace is doing that people can become part of when they join Greenpeace. Yeah, and we definitely don't limit ourselves to coal plants in the U.S. We are operating in 40 countries right now. We are working to protect the Paradise Rainforest in Indonesia to stop overfishing. Um, one of the campaigns I'm really interested in is is our campaign to protect the Arctic and make it into a proper marine reserve. Unfortunately, as climate change is accelerating and the ice caps are shrinking, it's opening up a lot of new fishing lanes. Um, it's opening up new drilling and resource extraction sites. So, you know, we're actually combining our efforts from the U.S. office to Canada to Russia to Norway, you name it, to actually do a comprehensive campaign to protect the Arctic. So there's, like you said, a whole host of ways that people can get involved with Greenpeace, not only in the U.S., but internationally. And we're able to, to operate and strategize at that level, and it's what it's going to take to confront some of these industries. And thank you for taking your time, you know, to talk with us and sharing, you know, some personal accounts from your point of view, not just the big party lines and stuff. No, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to come on and, and chat about this stuff. It is very near and dear to my heart. And I see your office is right here, is in Chicago. So if people are in town, they should give you a call, right? Yes, definitely. We have an <laughs> office right downtown in the Loop and... The door's always open for, for new volunteers and activists, so don't hesitate to get in touch. Uh, Kelly uh, Mitchell of uh, Co Coal Campaigner for Greenpeace, and that's at greenpeace.org. Uh, thank you so much for um, being on the show with us today and, uh, and informing us and making a difference for the people of Salem and Chicago so they won't have to inhale so much uh, toxins coming out of these coal plants. Thank you, Rob. Um, and, and that's it for Ocean River Shield to the Achilles. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.